Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's funny how many times you'll talk to someone online for a while, but like all you have is like a static picture of them. You don't know what their voice sounds like and everything. So it's great to actually like interact like real people. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's, uh, to me, that's something that only happened after the pandemic because before the pandemic, you meet with someone in a local meetup group first and then you follow them on Twitter or LinkedIn and then you go back to meeting them in person. But the the first step kind of being taken away uh, because of the pandemic. It, it, it really varies. Like for me, I know I sort of met uh, some people online and like I have people that are my friends and peers now, like Lindsay Betzendahl or Kevin Flerledge, who I I followed and I looked up to and then sort of like we all sort of eventually hit a similar tier. I'm not saying I'm, I'm on par with Kevin. Kevin just blows me away. But it's like it's weird that uh, I have them texting me personally or calling me on my birthday and stuff like this is strange. Like I, I don't you shouldn't be talking to me. Well, by the way, uh, happy birthday again. I hope that uh, you spent uh, yesterday uh, like in whichever way that you want, <laughs> best way possible. <laughs> it was pretty great. Uh, I had my parents uh, bring me over, like they made food, which is always great when someone else does that. Um, and then I foolishly decided to take my new uh, e-bike out for a ride, which I've been doing a lot, but I'm like, I don't like, it's got like a long range and I do like these like 20 mile rides. I'm like, I've got plenty of range. I'm not worried. I ran out with about a mile left and that's not a problem on any other bike on earth, but my e-bike is like 70 pounds and it's single speed. So that last mile being partly uphill and it being like a hundred degrees outside was pretty arduous. I see. I see. What's the difference uh, between uh, an e-bike and a normal bike? E-bike uh, has a motor that can assist you. So like, you know, the standard bike, you shift gears. Iconic. Okay. Exactly. So like the lowest gear level, it cancels out the weight of the bike entirely. So you're riding it just like a normal bike. And each further level you increase it, it's like multiplying your pedal power. So at max assisted power, when you're pedaling, you can hit, a, I've hit 26 miles an hour, which is pretty awesome. Like you're really flying and you're still pedaling. You're not, not working, but you're not working as hard as you would be going, be going 26 miles an hour. And one of the best benefits is to blast through hills. So like if you're, you've got a good momentum and you're enjoying riding, but you hit this hill and you really don't want to just like sort of kill yourself on it. You just crank that up and then the hill feels like you're riding up a flat surface. I see. That makes sense. I, uh, I used to be a motorbike rider. Uh, motorbikes are very pub, uh, common public transportations in Taiwan. And I stayed there for seven years. So uh, yeah, in Taiwan, we will ride motorbike in like uphills, downhills, or even go into some muddy lands. Yeah. You would love this because it also has a twist throttle and on the twist throttle alone, it can go up to 20 miles an hour. Like, so if you decided I'm just, I'm, I'm beat, I'm not going to pedal anymore. You just twist that thing. And what it's really nice is, is for getting started. Sometimes like you're waiting at an intersection and you want to like get going pretty quick, do that. And then you start pedaling and, and you catch up to the bike. So I wanted to ask you like, I don't know that many PhDs sort of within the Tableau and data community. So I know you just got yours recently, right? Yeah, I was doing the math. Uh, I was doing the, ma uh, the math uh, the other day, and I'm four days away from my first anniversary of Great. getting a PhD. Yep, wow. yep, yeah. It's 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 been something. And yeah, a couple of days ago, I was I was being reflective because uh, a different kind of uh, 
you know, Facebook and Twitter to remind you what happened a year ago. And then it's like, oh, I'm wrapping up. I, I was wrapping up and then I was prepare, uh, uh, preparing my pre uh, final defense. And then I was talking about how relieved I was uh, after submitting the thesis. Yeah, a lot of things had happened and uh, definitely uh, things had turned out okay compared to what I was so anxious about a year ago. So I'm grateful for it. That's awesome. I mean, is is getting a PhD something that was always like I, you planned on doing, or is it something as you progress through your educational career that you're like, you know, I think this is something I would like to do? I like how you phrase the questions because it's like coming from my perspective, am I the one that wanted to do it? But from my actual like perspective, I felt like I was being told that you're so good at chemistry. Have you considered doing a master? Have you considered doing a PhD? Have you considered going to the United States and do a PhD? So, and then I've been told enough that, oh, you're, you, you could be doing quite well with it. So I did it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, looking back, that's not that, of course, of course, I was the one that applied for them. I was the one that like booked a ticket and came to the United States. So yeah, I, wouldn't I'd say that most of the motivation was external, but the last mile of the sprint is definitely something that I realized that okay I had strain to pull this off. I uh, I realized that I had all the data that I need, I had the tool that I need, and I just need to finish writing it up. And then the next thing I know, I graduated. So <laughs> it's a blur. That's awesome. I I uh, I congratulate anyone that pursues their higher education because I know how difficult it is. I I thought about doing a PhD at one point, but I realized, like in my case, most of the application for it would be teaching in higher ed. And while I do like the idea of teaching, teaching in higher ed feels like such a hassle sometimes. And I'm just like, I don't know if I want to like put in all the time and effort to commit to that. So it, for me, it was something I'm like. Not not important now. I did do my master's degree, but that was right after college. And similar to you, I felt like it was something that while I, you know, actually filled out the paperwork, I didn't feel like I had a lot of choice at the time because I graduated and I was graduating with like an MIS degree, a management information systems and a marketing degree. But it was around the time the dot-com bubble had just burst. So all of the job prospects that my peers had gotten two years before had sort of dried up. And there wasn't really an evident job market. So I was like, hmm, if I can go straight into grad school, like people are telling me, you know, I'll get to go for free, essentially, as long as I do an assistantship. I'm like, I, this makes sense. So I just sort of went straight through and it was a slog. I mean, there was, there was some, and nothing compared to a PhD, but like I was working like two jobs and I was doing it at double speed because the assistantship and you know, all my class during the evenings and then I do like homework until midnight. And I'm glad I did that when I was like 24 and not 40. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, kind of when you uh, said the word um, assistantship, there's so much memory uh, came out of my mind. So not necessarily the good ones. Yeah. I remember even though being a, a, a teaching assistant or in my case, I was the head teaching assistant of a large classroom course it was almost a full-time job. The, the, the duty that you have, um, even though they say, yeah, it's 20 hours per week. Uh, the, the fact that just because you're not teaching doesn't mean that you weren't thinking about teaching or weren't thinking about the, the documents that you had to handle yet tomorrow at 7 a.m. So the stress uh, 
making it very very difficult for you to focus on your own research, even though when you're not teaching. So yeah, I, I understand that. Oh man, I just remember for me, my assistantship, like some people got to be TAs, which I probably would have enjoyed, but I was an, um, an undergraduate advisor. So I worked along mm -hmm. people that were actually, that was their full-time job, but there were a handful of us in the grad school probably like a half dozen of us. And yeah, we had, we had people like from all over people that were local, like a girl from Hungary, like I had a friend from China and we were all sort of the advisors. And it was almost like a weird summer camp situation, how there were like the grownups and then there were us. And it was a weird job because your responsibility is to people come in and say, I'm an econ major. And you'd look at the classes they passed. You'd look at what is transferred from other universities and say, okay, these are the next class you need to take. And it was such a sort of challenge because you had to come up with a way to navigate their degree path as quickly as possible. Because with so many prerequisites, if you recommend the wrong class at the wrong time, you could mess up somebody's graduation by like an entire year. And it's like a lot of pressure. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, part of the burden of being a teacher is uh, the constant fear of you're going to teach that, uh, lead them to the dark path <laughs> like lead them to doing nothing is like better than like realizing that what if i like mess them uh mess up their life yeah that's that's stress i'm so glad that uh in my current positions i don't have to worry about that that much anymore so you got your phd in digital media evaluation right and now you're working at discover is that correct yep so yes, uh, that's so go back to the term uh, digital media evaluation. That is a term that I put on my PhD. So on my dissertation, that's not what it's wrote. There's a lot of but in that sentence. So I graduated from a PhD of science from the Department of Chemistry, but I was in the chemical education. So I study what facilitate or hinder students' learning experience, particularly in learning chemistry. But my thesis topic was to analyze what about the visual design of a scientific animation that helps students understand a very specific scientific content. Basically, I spent five years working that out. So when I was trying to market myself after I graduated, I was like, if I told people that I'm a PhD in chemistry, no one wants to hire me to do data visualization, right? Why would you? So I'm trying to like rephrase it in a way that is uh, true to my study, but not necessarily true to the title of the institution. I like it. It's like you got a degree in minutia. You, uh, you're, it was so focused. But I, I relate to that because I... Um... I might be on the spectrum to a degree. I don't know. My dad definitely is. So it would not be surprising if I am. Um, and both mm -hmm. of my daughters are dyslexic. So in the middle, I was one of those kids that was always in sort of like the advanced classes in elementary school. But then as I hit middle and high school, I my grades became much more average and I struggled in a lot of subjects. And I've always wondered, like retrospectively looking back, like, you know, could it be like something along the lines of something like that that might have hindered me? Or I mean, it's not that I wasn't studying, but and and I had some subjects like particularly biology that I was much better at because it was much more rote memorization than chemistry, where chemistry, you're definitely having to understand a greater sort of mathematical concept and the relationship between things and how they all operate together. So yeah, that was that was always interesting. And and I think I probably would have benefited from your your path of study because 
is one of those topics where I find myself getting my clock cleaned and I'm just like, I studied, like I, I tried, like, I don't understand why am I not doing great in this? It's, it's, uh, I recently had, the uh, understanding or the, or just an understanding just came to me that be, like using my PhD as a like cutoff point before that I study time, time series data, but at the microscopic level at the atomic atomic level uh, sometimes even at the quantum level right things are so small so tiny or cellular level things are small but now when i'm working in a financial service company things are years decades and then we're not talking about one person we're talking about a group of people within a city within a state within a country or across different countries so there's still data there's still most of the time time series data racial data but yeah it's trying to find what I've learned in the past and applied in the, in the future. That's, that's very interesting to me. That, that is so interesting because if you think about it, you know, what are we, but an aggregation of the sum of our elements, right. And what is the time we're experiencing, but a, you know, a different level of detail on time than something taking place at an atomic level. So you can still use so many of the same concepts to express something happening all the way down to cellular levels that we would to discuss, I don't know, interest earned over the past three years or something. Yeah, yeah, that's that's why every time when I'm looking at it, every time when I'm looking at uh, like uh, economy related data, financial related data, sometimes the metrics, I have no idea what they are, but I'm like, I'm just gonna like, just pretend that's a metric that you got from a lab. And then what 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 you can do, what if you if you have done it, you might have, resulted in something misleading. So trying to put the, 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 the principal level thinking and apply them in my current work, that's definitely something that I do on a daily basis. So you've got a lot of really nice work out on your public portfolio, I was looking at it. And you, your design styles are oftentimes, you're leaning very towards some of the modern aesthetics with like rounded edges and sort of soft curves and even like a slightly gradient backgrounds. You know, it's the kind of stuff that we get in modern apps and stuff, but often isn't out of the box in data visualization tools like Tableau. Um, what, what kind of influences do you draw from when you're interested in creating a personal project sort of versus some of your work elements? Are you looking towards your science background and some stuff you've seen in journals and that sort of stuff? Are you looking at data viz that you've seen online? Like, where's it coming from? Oh, that's a big question. I, um, so when I'm designing those, uh, the those visualization for my personal project, uh, a lot of them uh, are coming from like UX, UI, uh, like visualizations that I, yeah. I've been seeing online, I've been following online. A lot of them were from Instagram, Dribble, or Behance. Uh, Lindsay is actually uh, Lindsay's actually recommended a lot of those uh, um, in like two conferences ago, and. Yeah, a lot. I I I constant visit those. Uh, my my Instagram, uh, like the the you know the the page where you can keep on scrolling. Like uh, those are not the people that you follow, but the people that they recommended to you. A lot of them were just UX UI stuff. That I was like, oh, that thing's so cool. I wonder how they did it. Oh, that thing looks so futuristic. I wonder how they did it. So I was trying to use my personal project as a uh, as a safe space to try to push forward. Like how slick I can make them how slick I can make them without too confusing 
to be used. Hopefully, most of my this is not that confusing to be read. Um, and but in terms of people, there are actually a lot of people that has uh, fueled these uh, transformation uh, from a traditional uh, Tableau template to the one that I'm currently having, like Autumn, uh, Lindsay's, uh, Chimdi, and, and, and even uh, Chantilly. And, and their works uh, put on their Tableau public and their YouTube channels definitely has uh, have helped me a lot. I really enjoy um, looking at your stuff. Um, and you have a favorited at the top of yours, which is KPIs with changing color tiles. And I yep. really like that one because I think oftentimes when we think of color, we think so much of foreground and not a background. And I've told the story before about I reviewed someone's work and their entire background was red and their foreground was just like a white tabular view. And I was like, well, the first thing everyone's going to look at here is your tabular, you know, the, the red background and not your actual numbers. Well, you sort of leverage that in a creative way to deliver these area charts that are a neutral color, but the background changes color to indicate sort of a positive or a negative valence, which I thought was a really clever view because that pops a lot bigger on the page. And it feels, particularly if you're used to using Tableau or something, it feels like an extra feature that you don't get out of the box. Like you're not typically seeing that kind of thing. So uh, when it comes to something like that, where, was that the intent of that project? Like, were you going for that or were you starting with a data source and sort of tooling around to figure out what you could make out of it? I was actually starting with a data source and then I I had a bunch of sketches. Give me five seconds just to see sure. if I can find them. I have a, yeah, I don't think it's from this book. Anyway, we'll see. I, I too have composition books around my office and desk. I have one over here piled under my children's I have a book them with database. So. Oh yeah. They're all blacks uh, most of the time. So yeah, I believe usually I'll have you know, different books and then I would keep on sketching them. Uh, and then just to see how, like, like what if I do this? What if I do that? I usually start with sketching and just to see what kind of feel I can get and then what has been done, what's okay, what's what what's like, it's not even gonna work on drawing. So let alone like making them on my website. Um, I can't remember what was the, motivation behind it but oh yeah i think i started with wanting to make something like just the line or area chart like the last dot i'm gonna like use a different color to indicate when it's going up or down but then i realized that a lot of people have done it yeah spark right usually when you are participating in these kind of like community challenges uh people are like submitting real fast. And then so when you're creating yours and to a degree, and then you start to look at what you have created and then what's been online, you're like, okay, so how can I add to this? Like I can keep on proving to everybody that I can do what they do, but I feel like uh, sometimes you you want to move beyond that, right? To yourself, like that's the limit that I try to set for myself. I can create someone that, uh, I can create something that someone has created. Now let's push it one step forward. And I can't remember what inspired this one, but yeah, it just happened. <laughs> I don't have that. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I understand. And honestly, in terms of portfolios and sort of where you are in your career and, and where you are in sort of data visualization, there's different incentive structures to what you're making, right? Like earlier in your career, a lot of it is first off, probably before you discover there's a community in the first place, it's you fooling around and trying to understand the tool and what you can make out of it. Then once you realize there's a community, and especially when you sort of have a lower follower count, you're not as known, people don't know who you are or the kind of stuff you make, 
you're more incentivized to like go big. Like I'm going to show you every single trick I know and all my stuff might be, I'm not going to say overbuilt, but you're going to put a lot of bells and whistles in it. And then as you sort of start to develop a follower count, people understand, okay, this person's competent. They've got a voice, you know, they've got a style or something they want to show. And then they're sort of along for the ride and you sort of settle into a more established place. I'm definitely in that, that established place at this point. Um, and a lot of that was just because I found what I wanted to do. And I just started doing that and whether people liked it or not, I, I did it. And in, in many people's cases, like, like you or maybe Kevin Florlidge, you're going to invest a lot more technical detail into it than I might, because for me, I know my attention span and that's probably about three hours. So uh, while for an iron viz entry, I might force myself to do 30, my native uh, attention ability is I'm going to burn out on this thing in about three to four hours. So if I don't choose a path that gets me there in that amount of time, I'm not ultimately going to enjoy this ride. To me, it's, uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned iron vis. Uh, I, people uh, like my peers and I were joking about like, like the, the, the amount of, uh, you, you, you need not just your stamina, but your, I don't know, your grit, your resistance, like how do you pull it off like in 20 minutes and the, for the pre-submission, how do you spend 30 minutes just on one topic and re make it really comprehensive? I don't think I'm there yet <laughs> at the side. And the stress to perform it in front of uh, everybody within 20 minutes, that's, that's beyond me, but that's a goal that I strive to, move towards but yeah i'm not gonna beat myself towards i mean uh, i'll be honest be yeah. like the whole experience seems miserable to me and that that's probably <laughs> has a lot to do with my personality like first of all the entry process is the way i prefer to viz the least which is long form where i'm literally like i'm i'm not trying to go for brevity and succinctness and get to my points as quickly as possible I'm trying to get to my points in such a way where you can put as many things on the page to show everything that you know, which is kind of what we see in, in you know, entries for IronViz, right? Like you're not seeing things with two charts where they're like, wow, these are the two most masterful charts I ever could have imagined for this, even if they're incredibly technical. It's always like you might have five really incredible technical charts and then like seven other supporting charts. You know, it's, it's a big project. And then if you get past that and you actually go to the show, now spend an entire month practicing doing speed drills on something until you have definitely lost all passion for it and then do it in front of all your industry peers on stage that's actually how i feel uh the like the first three months after i defended my phd i'm like i don't want to look at what i did in the past five years anymore i lost interest at the data i lost interest at the topic I just want to move on. I, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I feel like that's that's what might have uh, been happening for all of those contestants. Like, I just don't want to touch anything visualization related or not even Tableau. I don't hear it. Sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine it's what it might feel like if you're writing a book or a screenplay or something. You know, you've gone through so many edits and revisions. You've you've gone through it backwards and forwards that by the time you're done with it and you're actually revealing it to people that might be interested and they want to talk about it, you are so mm -hmm. burned out of like burned out on it and sick of it that you're having to feign interest in your own thing to like keep the conversation going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, but recently I did revisit uh, some of my old writing uh, 
and some of my old business. And I, I could see, I could see what uh, I was coming from, and and definitely appreciate the growth. And sometimes you can see like some mistake that you've made uh, in an old business, or in my case, I'm old writing. You're like, yeah, that happened, but I'm just gonna let it go and appreciate it. I've grown so much out of those. Have you ever gone back to look at old projects, whether it's like something you wrote or something you created and you don't remember doing it and you're like, I made this for real? Like that's something like I um, I was cleaning out um, some boxes my parents had brought. They moved they moved back down to Tennessee a couple of years ago and they brought along all these boxes of my stuff. And in one of them, are there just these volumes of art that I had drawn over like 20 years or so? And I'm looking at all of them like, there's no way I made this. Like some of them, like, I definitely remember drawing this thing. But others, I'm like, I made all this? Like, that can't be right. Like, I don't remember any of it. I have a lot of uh, old, like, chemistry notes at the bottom of my uh, drawer. And yeah, I mean, I, yeah, some, uh, I, I believe like two months ago, I went back to Purdue University and visited one of my friends. Uh, she was about to move out of Purdue, so she handed me back like a note that I borrow her like when she just gets started she's like oh by the way I don't need to use this anymore so I grab it back and I start to read it it was yeah it's very cringy but yeah definitely see oh yeah I was I've been a control freak because I insist that all my notes has to be perfect and I can see a lot of correct correction tapes marks on it <laughs> just to make a sentence correct but yeah I could see the pattern but uh definitely also like see the the, 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 the childishness of, 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 of the thing that I used to write or the things that I used to draw. So to that matter, I'm going to use this as a transition to talk about one of your visits and also go back to our idea of keeping our notebooks. So I'm holding one of my composition books in hand and I was, I was flipping it open as we were talking earlier. And I see some stuff yeah. in here like uh, rock of ages, which I did, which is the guitar fret neck showing the, uh, ages of rock stars when they sang about uh, underage girls which was super creepy and look it's not my fault it's creepy they were the ones doing the singing i was just pointing it out um but i wanted to show this which is it's me starting to draw a ternary chart like one of your visits and then next wow. to it i have a tombstone that says r.i.p and then different years and it says page 120. i have no idea what book i'm referencing what years these are or who this is. So at one point I was planning on doing a ternary chart about someone dying. I don't know who, but if I had to guess, I'm willing to bet this is Dr. Who because the doctor dies like a lot. Huh. That's very interesting. That would be, that would be an awesome, like national, national, national treasure episode. <laughs> like if they were to reboot it, we was like, oh, we inherited this piece of paper. Let's figure it out. What? Let's try to decode it. Yeah, that's very interesting. And yeah, the the plot. <laughs> you know, okay. It's, so uh, I've got go a book ahead. called like Who Graphica or something I found in Key West in a bookstore. It's like a data viz book. It's only for Doctor Who. I haven't found it anywhere else since then. I found it in that shop. I bought it used for like $8 and I read it on the plane on the way back. And like, I think I saw a chart in there with all the times the doctor dies. But then again, like, you know, these things are always sketchy to me. Like fan, fans of stuff like that are really hardcore. And if you mess up the number of times the doctor has died, you're just going to be roast till five. Yeah, I actually had a, a, a minor project that I've been building up. It's about uh, Iron Man. I'm not going to say too much about it, but about Iron Man. 
And I was like, yeah, I, I really need to like comb through the details because I would hate it when someone messed it up too. So yeah, it's a lot of stress uh, when it comes to fan base project. <laughs> I, I did a times Batman has died once and uh, no one really questioned me that hard on it. Cause like Batman has died a lot. Like some of the, some of these characters, like when you have billion dollar IPs and you're trying to find ways to make them interesting, you know, and you've written them for over 80 years. Like sometimes you're like, how do we juice sales? Uh, Batman dies, comes back two months later. No problem. You know, so something like that. So it's like, you'll find all these characters like Captain America, Batman, Iron Man have like died like a half dozen times each. And it's to the point where like it doesn't even juice the sales numbers because everyone's become so numb to the concept of death. They're like it's just a revolving door. So it's like, yeah, 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 he's dead. Who's gonna play Iron Man while he's gone? And when does he come back? Yep, yep. Like they're, they're gonna they're gonna find a way to reset the timeline or use some super weapon to turn back time or go to a different multiverse to grab it, <laughs> to grab the copy of Iron Man from their that universe. Yeah, I just actually I just finished uh, watching uh, Thor last night. How yeah, was it? Just, Did you enjoy it? It's, it's. I, I, I no longer have that excitement in the recent uh, movies. I think in the past I enjoyed it a lot because I had a group of really close friends, uh, like in Taiwan, and we will go watch the premium <laughs> to get the premiere together. But yeah, I no longer have those kind of friends here, and you know, like we're 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 in, like in in my early thirties, so just. I'm not gonna like ask uh, my peers, my coworkers. I do want to go and like, hang after work. So yeah, so no longer have that excitement, but it's okay. I just turned forty-one. I'm not excited about anything anymore. But that's that's. I was gonna say like I think one of the dilemmas with Marvel Studios films, and we're digressing. I'll get back to where we're going in a second. Is that <laughs> you know they they clearly intended for several years to build our excitement towards a particular point. It's much, much like, I don't know, listening to a dubstep. It's all building towards a bass drop. And then when that happens, the boo, like that's when the crowd goes nuts. Well, they did that for years. And the pacing of comic style storytelling, serialized storytelling, like soap operas or wrestling or whatever else you choose, is that you keep multiple things like that going at once so that once you pay off one big thing, you're already building to the next thing. They didn't do that. They, they closed the loop. They took most of the major players off the stage. And then they've spent a lot of, you know, what they're calling stage four now, you know, sort of trying to set up new characters with varying degrees of success without giving you a reason yep. to get excited. Like when they were saying, hey, a big threat is coming where we've got a cohesive story. Can't you see that? There's not really a sign of that, except that they're clearly going to do a multi-universal concept, which at the same time is a dangerous prospect because if there could be a billion different Iron Men, then Robert Downey Jr. can come back anytime and death doesn't matter that much again. We're back there. So yep, yep. Agree with you. <laughs> so let's let's talk about ternary charts. So you did a really cool one. And I mean, this this was sort of the talk of the day when it came out. Like even Steve Wexler and different people were chiming in about the the choice of chart type, right? Because it's like chart types can be a hot topic. Like, is this a good choice? Is this a bad choice? Uh, does it catch mm -hmm. the eye? Does it engage audiences? And you were sort of hitting um, that, let's see, the, uh, what was it? A workout Wednesday day, a back to Viz basics data set on acceptance yep. of homosexuality in countries around the world. And there were sort of three different data points for each country, like what percentage of people uh, uh, do not know or refuse to answer, what percentage of people say should be accepted and what people should say it should not be accepted. 
So you took the three of those and sort of broke it into a triangle and used that to map each country as a different point within this triangle, which many people would argue, hey, not a best practice, right? Like we get that a lot, but it's a risky, it's a risky proposition putting it out there, but it was an eye-catching visual that made people notice the viz and read more of it than they would have had you used just bars. So what was the sort of plan behind this? Had you always planned on using that chart type? No, actually, um, well, actually, uh, when I first uh, got in the project, there are only two data points per country, which is uh, like, which are, uh, should be accepted by the society or should not be accepted by the society. There's no column for do not know or refuse to answer. So what I did was I did the math real quick and I was like, okay, there's something missing there. And those are the one that's like, Usually it's the other or not uh, like not applicable, something like that if it's a survey data. And I did in the past, uh, in the past uh, I have handled uh, survey data before and then we know that it's always yes, no, or like do not answer, right? People just straight up not clicking anything in uh, to answer a question. So what I did was I used Excel to find out those like do not, do not know or refuse to answer the question. And I realized that some country actually have a big chunk of people that just straight up didn't even click that, like answer that questions at all. They like, they either avoided to answer it or they just didn't realize it. But but the story become interesting, right? Like why? And when I start to plot the data in different ways, including diverging bar chart, diverging bar chart with the do not know in the middle, or put them in the separate columns. And I realized that, okay, that's a way, but where's the pattern? And then of course, simultaneously, people started to some people start to submit their visits on Twitter. And they're like, okay, diverging bar chart, diverging bar chart, diverging bar chart with rainbows. <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, cool. And I know I can create a diverging bar chart. And I have other visas in my portfolio that proven that I can create a diverging bar chart. So what else that I can do? I was thinking about that, and I actually created a full scale like diverging bar chart uh, visualization. I was about to submit, and I was like, okay, let's just try it again. And then I was thinking about that, and then I was thinking about like what can we use to symbolize uh, the LGBTQ plus society other than the pride flag color scheme. And I realized that a conversation. I real, and then I remember a conversation that I had many years ago. Um, uh, in a diversity uh, workshop. And then uh, someone introduced the concept of the pink triangle to me. And uh, I didn't know uh, what that symbol uh, means to the community because back in Asia, no one talks about it. Uh, like in, no one talks about it, especially, um, yeah, especially in Malaysia where this, this is just not in the curriculum at all. So, when they told me the symbol, and then when I recall that conversation, I was like, yep, something triangle, I have three axes. And then I just went to internet, I tried to learn how to do that mathematically. And then, yep, boom, that's what you, that's what you see. It was, it was a super clever take. It was, it's a different chart type than we typically see. And I mean, I learned something just from that as well, because I didn't know that the, the Nazis used the pink triangle in concentration camps to shame gay people. So it was an interesting way to not only reveal that piece of information, but also 
I, I like that you found the hidden story within the data, which is often sometimes the more interesting story. Like the, I'm not really sure I want to answer that question, which was not an evident part of the data set. And, you know, it's, it's stories like that, that drew me into data in the first place, like reading Freakonomics when I was 20. And it's like the hidden side of everything, the parts of the story that's not immediately evident from the data, like uh, how they were able to track which uh, public school teachers were helping students cheat on tests and that sort of thing. It's the same way they were uh, judging which sumo wrestlers were uh, intentionally throwing bouts and stuff like that, not by what the data says, but what's missing from the data or the trends that would occur under certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. So I, I like that you took an extra step there, not just in your design process, but finding this extra data point that then made this other chart type even possible. So yeah, it, it makes it a, a joy on multiple levels to understand the story behind how you got there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, and and uh, I was actually very surprised because uh, when I thought it was just like another submission of mine, I'm just gonna put it on Twitter and if people like about it, I can move on with uh, my day. And I realized that people started to talk about it. And then people uh, start to like, um, they're, they're, I've heard a story from both ends, right? People really appreciate that is a noble chart that could bring, add values to the conversations. And then other people thought that the triangle could be distracting or just straight up the point that eternally plot is very difficult to read. <laughs> like this plot, I cannot tell you like the exact value of any data point at the spot. I need to use my tools him and then hover over data the, the data point to read the actual value. So it's uh, I'm glad that it has um, initiated a lot of conversations and most of the time it's about the techniques, <laughs> yeah. but sometimes about uh, the meaning behind it. And if anyone can learn just a little bit new thing out of this chart, then I think somehow my goal has been accomplished. I'll tell you this, it made me curious to hover on it, which many other things I just looked at and I sort of glanced at it for five seconds and, you know, I moved on to the next thing because, you know, we live in a media saturated world, right? We're being hit with a thousand things a minute and I saw hundreds yep, of yep. different rainbow charts and it's, it's a, a very obvious use case, you know, to sort of jump in with a, a spectrum of color and stuff. And that's why everybody did it. You know, it's, it's not a bad thing. It's, you know. Uh, but you chose a different route, and I thought that was interesting, particularly since I'd never heard of the pink triangle before. It's an uh, it's an unusual chart type, and you know, it, like you're saying, it's really difficult to like. I'm like, is that a fifty percent? Like, where is that? I actually had to hover on. I'm like, oh wow, Lithuania is the one that had the highest percentage of refuse to answer. Like, I didn't, I wouldn't have expected that. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and fun fact, uh, the ternary, uh, the ternary plot. It's one of the common chart type in uh, chemistry because they use anytime if you have a solution or a mixture with three parts of different things, then usually they can use the ternary plot to visualize the distributions of different components within a mixture or within different mixtures. So yeah, definitely drawing some channel the chemistry part of me like, come on, be, be a chemist and see what you can do. That's really interesting. So what's what's next for you? Like, what is your preferred method of finding new projects? Do you prefer the community exercises or do you like to go, you know, dig out a data set of your own from somewhere or something in the middle? So currently I've been uh, putting my eyes on uh, back to uh, back to this basics and the real world fake data. 
uh, these two kind of have a different uh, frequency, right? Different cadence. So it's easy for me to like, just pick one. If the topic uh, interests me, then I'll, I'll try to do that. If not, I'll wait for another one. But even other than that, I actually my I have a, a bunch, a series of personal projects that I'm trying to accomplish, which is try to see how well we can integrate Tableau and Figma. Right. We know that Tableau's uh, all the parameters, the filters, the uh, multi-selection, the single selections, uh, filters. Uh, those uh, they're good design, but they're very small. <laughs> right. But uh, if I were to boom them up or make them look more like a normal app, how would I do that? And I believe that using Figma can accomplish a, a lot of those. And I believe using both tools we can make modern business dashboards that are not just sleek, but easy to use. So that's something that I'm currently trying to do. I have a couple of side projects in my, like I have a lot of side project in my VIS folder on my computer. But yeah, that's definitely something that I'm trying to do other than those community challenges that I've been joining. I think that's, you're, you're doing God's work there. Like one of, one of my complaints about Tableau is, that while for all of its ease in making stuff um, and it's fun, it's like a lot of the UI stuff is lagging. I mean, it's like, what, why can't I click a box and make rounded corners on something? Like I can, I can do that on annotation and like, that's it. Mm -hmm. Like uh, so many people prefer modern UI. They're used to it. They're on Apple devices. Like they, they expect this. And then it's like, if you need to deliver that in a real use case, you're going to have to float stuff and it's going to be weird and it's going to be a little bit messy. So like anytime I see someone's for pushing the boundaries of that, like I'm, I'm always happy to see someone trying something new, even if it, you know, sometimes like I've messed with uh Tuan, like saying like, you're committing a date of his war crime with this insane chart you've made, but like, it's <laughs> worth doing. It's worth sometimes making stuff, even if there is no evident use case for it, but there is a evident use case for like modern design as we're calling it now. And we won't call it that in the future. I don't know what we'll call it then. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's you need to wander around to realize that you're in a new territory, right? Mm -hmm. It's like this is an uncharted territory. Let me try to make some mistake and see whether it works or not. If it works, then awesome. If it not, then let's not do that ever again. So yeah, that's definitely something that <laughs> that's that's definitely something that I've been trying to do. I actually talked to Chimdi recently, not recently, like uh, the beginning of the year, I believe. Uh, he uh, joined uh, the Chicago Tug and then we chat in the Zoom and I was like, are you the chimney that I know? Because we talk even in person. And then he described what I've been doing as a visualization experiment. They're like, I can see that the tiny experiment that you're trying to do, they're very non-traditional, but you kind of know where you're heading. It's like, yeah, I, that's a good word. Uh, I'm just trying to test the limit of the tool and my own limit. Well, and there's the power of the nudge in terms of influence. Like you might come upon something that might really benefit a lot of people. And it might not be something that people pick up overnight, but as they sort of see it and adopt it, like little steps like that might move, you know, mountains. So who knows what, what you're doing or other people are doing right now that might seem new or different or alien to the way we practice this, that could be, you know, industry standards in five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, hopefully I'm 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 pushing that uh, ship uh, to the positive direction <laughs> instead of dragging. It's like let's not do it. I always tell my friends that I believe like Tableau is a very good data visualization tool, 
tool. So let it be a visualize a data visualization tool and everything surrounding it, I'm gonna use something else so that it could be used focusly on data visualization. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, that's I I like that. You know what? Let's end on that. Kevin, thank you for coming. Is there anything you would like to shout out or promote before we wrap up today? Yeah, uh, several things. Well, first of all, uh, next Friday, I'll be presenting at the very first LGBTQ Tableau user group online. And yeah, you can go to my LinkedIn to find that uh, the registration information. And I'll also be presenting in Orlando Tuck at the beginning of August specifically on how to use Figma to, to Figma and Tableau to create business dashboards for professional use. So that's my first shout out. The second thing is I'd like to shout out to uh, a lot of uh, volunteers for Tableau conferences. People like, uh, oh God, I don't have her names. I have a Caroline Yam. People like, uh, who's the, the girl that's been working on the Friday thing, uh, data, Fam Roundup, what's her name? Lisa? No, it's not. She's starting with an A. Anyway, the staff that's been working on Data Fam Roundup, uh, I, I met a lot of those uh, in the conference. I'd just like to shout out to them. They are the people that has created that friendly, engaging atmosphere in the conference and within the community. And I just appreciate that. I hope they've been recognized more. Awesome. You know what? Thank you for everything you're doing. Thanks for everyone that's listening. Thanks for everyone out there doing their stuff. I look forward to seeing your tugs and thanks for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It just, uh, it's definitely a very enjoying conversation. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end. I really appreciate you listening to the Data Plus Love podcast. If you'd like to see more about what we're up to with the show, go to anchor.fm slash data plus love. Just spell it out, not a literal plus sign. Here you'll be able to see our library of episodes as well as interact with them either through polls or comments or leave a voicemail message that I'll put on an episode. You can interact with me personally by joining me on Twitter. I'm at Zach Bowders, not hard to hunt down. And if you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a tip for us or signing up for a small monthly donation at our ko-fi.com slash data plus love. Buying a cup of coffee for the show is just $3, and you can get more if you choose, or sign up to give that $3 or more monthly. Either way, I really appreciate it. Lastly, if you'd like to see more of my public data viz work, check me out on Tableau Public. So go to public.tableau.com and search for Zach Bowders. I'm the only one you won't have trouble finding me. I promise. So thanks again for hanging on to the end of the show. I really appreciate all of your listens. And until next time, this has been Zach Bowders for the Data Plus Love Network.